Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled." Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died." Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we prepare to look into this passage and study this passage that Chris had just read for us, I'd love to begin by asking God to help us to understand His Word. Um, we know that apart from Him, um, even though we can sort of intellectually understand it, and that's what Paul's talking about, this knowledge, we can't really have it transform us without the work of the Spirit. And so we always like to begin this time asking for God to do that work. Um, Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us, that you offer that rescue and redemption and restoration to all who would come to you and trust Christ. And we pray now that as we look at your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak into each one of our hearts and minds, convict us where we need conviction. Lord, challenge us where we need challenge. Comfort us where we need comfort. Um, instruct us where we need teaching. Um, Lord, you know far better uh, than any one of us where each one of us is at and where each one of us has struggled this morning. So by the power of your Spirit, would you uniquely apply um, this passage to each one of our lives? And we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Okay, so meat sacrificed to idols. Um, that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what the passage is about. And uh, that sounds relevant, uh, doesn't it? I mean, this is something we're, we've all been wondering about. Um, and although at this point, you're probably just thinking, Bill, as long as it's not, you know, sex, marriage, singleness, I'm just glad we're not talking about that. I'm happy we're talking about anything else. Um, and again, this, this might not seem particularly relevant to us this morning, but, but what Paul writes here in chapter 8, and we're also going to look a little bit at the end of chapter 10, what Paul writes in these places is actually, I think, one of the most relevant, most practical sections in all of this letter. Uh, you see, the question that the Corinthians were dealing with, that Paul's addressing here, uh, had to do with the origin of their food. Where did their food come from? And actually, this is a question that we still deal with a lot today and wonder about. Today, we, we're asking questions like, well, is it, is it organic? Is it, is it cage-free? Is it fair trade? 
Is it grass-fed? Is it, is it very vegetarian, vegan? Um, but for the question for the Corinthians was whether or not the, the food they were about to eat, the origin, had it been used in a, in a worship ceremony in a temple, in a pagan worship ceremony? Had it been offered to an idol before it had made it to their plates? You see, for them, the the meat that they bought at the grocery store in the market, there was a high likelihood that some of it would have been used in a worship ceremony for an idol. And the question was, should they eat it? And and wouldn't it be nice if the answer to that question was simply a yes or a no? But as so often is the case, real life just isn't that simple. Uh, We tend to love black and white, really clear distinctions, but we live in a world with lots of gray, in fact, all kinds of colors, and many of the decisions that we have to make on a day-to-day basis are less than black and white. I mean, wouldn't life be easier if if Jesus, if the Bible were just like one of those old magic eight balls, but with only two answers, right? You would shake it up and he says, yes or no. Should I do this? No. Can I do that? Yes. Um, But the Bible gives us a lot of guidelines, um, but it doesn't give us a word on every single thing. And in fact, there's all kinds of freedom. Life is full of issues that we are left as Christians to decide what's best. Um, Social media, how we use alcohol increasingly, lots of states are legalizing marijuana. Uh, Movies, TV, books, remember the big Harry Potter debate, is that okay to read or not? Clothing, music, politics schooling, how you spend money, what job to take, what school to go to, what, who to marry, and, and also whether or not to eat meat that had first been sacrificed to an idol before it ended up on your plate. And what Paul is going to show us here in chapter 8 and also at the end of chapter 10 is that while in the gospel we are given incredible freedom that we can and should enjoy, ultimately, Love for you is better than freedom for me. Ultimately, love for you is better than freedom for me. So what I want to do this morning is is first give you sort of a brief overview of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10, sort of get a sense of what Paul is saying here, and then spend really most of our time asking five key questions for making decisions when the Bible isn't clear. So we're going to do an overview of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10, and then say, okay, what are some decisions, some questions to ask when we, to make decisions when the Bible isn't clear, when it doesn't give us a clear yes or no? So what is Paul addressing here? These two chapters, chapter 8 and then the very end of chapter 10, they sort of form bookends of a much longer conversation that expands 8, 9, and 10. We're going to be looking into each one of those chapters in the coming weeks, but these bookends are really important to understand And in these chapters, Paul is dealing with with legalism and lawlessness, idolatry, and, and gray areas in life. And the issue that gives rise to this whole discussion is the issue of meat sacrificed or meat offered to idols. And here's where we need a little cultural background to understand what's going on here and why this was such a big deal. In a city like Corinth in the first century, um, there were lots of temples to various Greek and Roman gods. But these temples, they weren't just places of worship. You didn't just go there once a week to offer a sacrifice. They were also hubs of civic 
and, and even work life. So in a sense, we, sometimes we think about a city like Las Vegas, which is certainly known for prostitution and gambling, but it's also a place where all kinds of conventions and vacations take place. And so someone says, oh, I'm going to Las Vegas. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, to gamble um, or do other things, but it, they could just be going for a convention for work or something like that. And these temples were very much the same place. You could go there to worship an idol, but very likely um, maybe your trade group was just having a meeting there or a civic function was being held there. And so the meat that was sacrificed in those idols, though, was often served in the dining halls of these temples. They all had dining halls, and again, it was in the dining halls that these meals would take place. And so often the food that was served in the temple dining halls had at first been offered to idols. And so for the men and women who had become Christians in Corinth, meaning that they now worshipped only one God, the risen Jesus Christ, This situation raised all kinds of questions. Can I eat food that was sacrificed to an idol while I'm at the temple for a festival or a trade meeting? And if I go to a meeting there and we all sit down in the cafeteria for lunch, should I eat the food? Or what about can I eat food that was bought in the market that may have been sacrificed to an idol or may not? I don't don't know. It didn't have a label. I don't know. Did it come from a, a temple or not? Is it okay to eat meat bought in the market? Again, since the meat was offered to idols and the idols didn't actually eat it, you had all this leftover meat, and it was really prime cuts, and so um, they're selling it in the market. So if I want prime rib, and I'm not sure if an idol had enjoyed it before it ended up in the market, can I still buy it and eat it? Or what about if I go to a friend's house? And they're serving me food. Should I ask, had this meat been offered to an idol first, or should I just eat and not worry about it? Do I try to find out first? And people in the church at Corinth, they had all different kinds of opinions on how to answer those questions. And it was beginning to tear their community apart. But the church is one place where a diversity of opinions doesn't have to lead to division. And this is because love for you is more important than freedom for me. Love for you is more important than freedom for me. So notice in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. And it's kind of in quotes there. This is what they're saying then. We all possess knowledge. And this knowledge, Paul says, sort of this knowledge only, it puffs up. But love builds up. It says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, the problem with knowledge only is that it puffs up. Sort of imagine a person, sort of their chest puffed out, walking through a crowd, bumping people out of the way. And Paul says with this knowledge, look, we know that idols are nothing. That's what the people with knowledge are saying. We know that idols are nothing. These aren't, they're not real. There's nothing happening when the meat's sitting there. Eating meat sacrificed to idol isn't a big deal. It just sat in front of a a statue for a while. There's nothing happening. And here's the thing. That knowledge was correct. And Paul affirms their thinking on this in verses 4 through 6. But just when they're about to start sort of high-fiving and celebrating, yeah, we're right about this, Paul interjects a little word, but. But you can be right and still get it all wrong. You can be right and still get it all wrong. Because Paul says, not everyone has the same understanding as you do when it comes to these things. 
And this is his point in verses 7 through 13. Some people in the congregation were brand new to the faith. I mean, they had just a week ago or a month ago or a year ago, they had been worshiping idols in these temples. And for now, for them, they're in their minds eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and the worship of those idols, they're married, they're connected intimately. And so now, if there's all these people in their church community eating meat sacrificed to idols, for them, they're forced to make a choice. Do I be a part of this church family and do something that I think is sinful, or do I be isolated from my church family, which is where Christian faith goes to die in isolation, but think I'm right with God? You see, this isn't just about offending someone. It's actually about ending up destroying someone. They could lose their faith or confuse the gospel or, or eat something against their conscience and worship idols in the process. So look again what Paul writes in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 8. He says, and so by your knowledge, he's speaking to the people who have the knowledge, the strong people. He says, and so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, forcing the weaker brother or sister to make this choice is sinful. And it's not just sinning against them, it's actually sinning against Christ. So how is sinning against a fellow believer, how does that work? How does that actually sin against Christ as well? Well, think about it like this. The worst thing that you could do to me is to hurt or mistreat my wife or my daughter And by the same token, the best way that you can show love to me is to love my wife or my daughter. And it it works in the same way with God's family. When you destroy your brother or sister, you're destroying someone your heavenly father adopted at a very high price into his family. I think Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase in the message is right on here. He says, Christ gave up his life for that person wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for that person? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference anyway. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. You see, this is how knowledge puffs up. When we're concerned with ourselves and our freedoms, we can quickly turn freedoms into rights. We can quickly turn freedoms into rights. A freedom is something we use, but a right is something we protect. A right is something we demand. But love for you is better than freedom for me. Now, nowhere is Paul more clear about this than at the end of chapter 10. He writes beginning in verse 23. This is skipping ahead a couple chapters to the end of chapter 10. Verse 23, chapter 10. I'm just going to read a bit for you here. He says, all things are lawful. Again, he's quoting the Corinthians. We've heard this before back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat what is ever sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul's quoting from Psalms there. He says, look, everything belongs to God. Don't worry about it. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But, Paul says, if someone says to you, that's been offered to an idol and a sacrifice, then don't eat it. 
for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of their conscience. Paul says, I don't mean your conscience, but theirs. This is really key. Paul says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? And then Paul says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So when Paul wrote saying all things are lawful, Paul corrected them back in chapter 5, pointing out that some things are always unlawful, like greed and sexual immorality and reviling and slandering. Those things are, are always unlawful. However, in the areas where there really is freedom, Paul's point is not that their knowledge about right and wrong is wrong, but their motivation for how they act is wrong. It's not about whether eating or not eating food sacrificed to idols is inherently wrong. It's about whether or not eating food sacrificed to idols builds others up. Again, like in chapter 8, Paul says here, idols are nothing. You have freedom, and you should enjoy that freedom. And your freedom is not determined by someone else's conscience. Your freedom is determined by the gospel. Don't miss that. Your freedom is determined by the gospel not by someone else's conscience. However, because of your love for one another, your exercise of that freedom may sometimes be determined by someone else's conscience. So it's a very subtle but important distinction. The gospel is what determines our freedom, but the exercise of that freedom in a particular context or circumstance is sometimes determined by the conscience of another. Our freedom is about building others up. Remember, we've been saying all along throughout 1 Corinthians, we don't belong to us anymore. We're not, it's not about us. So the aim of faith is not just the acquisition of more information, but growth in love and obedience that builds others up. Therefore, to seek growth in faith is not primarily or not just about getting more information but it's about seeking to love others like God loves. Okay, so based on all of that, how do we make decisions in gray area where there's differences of opinion, where the scriptures aren't black and white? How do we actually go about making those kinds of decisions? Well, there are five questions we need to ask, and and each one of these questions we're going to look at is, is rooted in these two passages we just reviewed And so here are the the questions. Here's an overview. First of all, the question we need to ask is, am I really free? Am I really free? Second, what is the wise thing for me to do? Third, how does my conscience feel? Fourth, will it help me love? And then finally, can I call it worship? So so am I really free? What's the wise thing for me to do? Uh, How does my conscience feel? Will it help me love and can I call it worship? So let's take a look at each one of these. The first question we have to ask is, am I really free? The first step is to determine, does the Bible say anything about this particular question or issue? And that's what Paul is doing in these texts. He points out that idols really are nothing. 
They have no real substance or reality. They're just hunks of stone or wood or metal. There's only one true God. He made everything, and everything belongs to Him, even the meat that was used in a pagan worship ceremony. It ultimately belongs to God. And so He says, you're free on this. If meat sat in front of an idol before it sat on your plates, not a big deal. But Paul is also clear that the moment you start overtly worshiping idols through eating that meat, if that's what's happening in your mind in those moments, then you're out of bounds. That's how Christian freedom works. So, so here's, if you want to think about Christian freedom, here's how to think about it. If there's not a command against it or a principle that clearly pushes you in a certain direction, then you're free. So look at the Bible. If the Bible doesn't explicitly prohibit it, and sometimes we don't get something that addresses every particular context, but um, if there's no principles that push against it, then you're free. In the gospel, Jesus frees us from the tyranny of the law as the means of earning God's favor. Our rescue is based on what Jesus has done on the cross, not on how many rules that we create and keep. It's really important not to miss that because we're always at risk of adding to the gospel, of making our cultural or personal preferences into sort of salvation shibboleths or litmus tests for who's really in, who's really a Christian. And this is why Paul drives home the importance of Christian freedom here, even as he points out the supremacy of love. Again, I love how Eugene Peterson captures the essence of what Paul is saying here in chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. Listen to how he does. This is brilliant here. He says, but except for these special cases, meaning those cases where you have a weaker brother or sister who might stumble, but except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small people might, minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy, knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone will say? I thanked God for it, and He blessed it. Where the gospel allows freedom, we should not be restrictive. Where the gospel allows freedom, we should not be restrictive. In fact, making God more restrictive than He actually is goes all the way back to the origin of sin in the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what Eve did when she was tempted by the serpent. God had told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but then Eve adds, adds to God's command when she speaks it to the serpent. So she says, not only are, are we not to eat from it, but also we're not allowed to even touch it. God had never said anything about touching the tree. He only said, don't eat the fruit from it. When we make God more restrictive than He actually is, we lie about who He truly is, and we make Him seem less good and less gracious. That's a very dangerous thing to do. So, so what are some examples of this in our context? Uh, how about alcohol? Am I free to get drunk? No. I mean, the Bible's very clear about that. Am I free to drink alcohol? Yes. Uh, how about education? Am I free to neglect my kids and, and not care at all about their schooling? And No. Am I free to utilize public schools? Yes. 
or take money? Am I free to spend all of my money on me just buying what I want? No. Am I free to buy a nice house and, or a nice car? Assuming you're being generous? Absolutely, yes. So the first question to ask is, are you really free? And if the answer is yes, then enjoy that freedom. Don't say no where God has said yes. The second question we need to ask, though, is, what is the wise thing for me to do? So am I really free? But then what is the wise thing for me to do? Is this beneficial to me? Is it beneficial to others? What effect will it have on them? Will it encourage them? Will it help them to grow? Will it encourage me? Will it help me to grow? Or will it trip them up or hurt them? And again, Eugene Peterson just, just captures this so well. He says, look at it, looking at it one way, you could say anything goes because God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not to just get by. We want to live well, but first and foremost, our efforts should be to help others live well. So good. We want to live well, and first and foremost, we want to help others live well, and that involves wisdom. So what's the wise thing to do? How can you know? Well, Pastor Andy Stanley shared some great insights in this in a, in a recent podcast, and he says, really, you have to ask the question three times. What's the wise thing for me to do? Ask that three times, each a little bit differently. He says, first, ask, what's the wise thing to do in light of my past experience? What's the wise thing to do in light of my past experience? And the my there is key. Notice it's not the wise thing for my neighbor's past circumstances or my spouse's past circumstances. What's the wise thing for me in light of my past circumstances? Because we all have very different past circumstances that have shaped us. What is wise in light of your past circumstance and experience may be unwise in light of someone else's past experience. For example, we mentioned consuming alcohol a moment ago. And it's a, it's a matter of freedom. However, if in your past experience you've struggled with alcohol abuse or you have a family history of alcoholism, in light of that past experience, it's probably unwise for you to consume alcohol. So first, in light of my past experience. Second, what's the wise thing for me to do in light of my present circumstances? Now, again, each one of our present circumstances is unique. Um, so take the example of, of buying a car. So if, if I could buy any car, I'd go out and buy a, a Tesla Model S. I think they're really cool. Um, but is that a wise thing for me to do? I mean, there's freedom here, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with buying a Tesla. They're good cars. Um, but in light of Bill Gorman's present circumstance, it wouldn't be wise, uh, because the only way I could possibly do that would be go into all kinds of debt, and I'd have to stop giving and saving any money uh, to make the payments, if I could even do it then. However, for someone else, it could be a really good decision. It's an all-electric vehicle, after all. And, um, on the other hand, given someone else's present circumstances, buying a used 2012 ca ca uh, Camry, which is what I bought instead of the Tesla, um, <laughs> that might be an unwise decision based on their financial situation. Maybe they need to buy the 99 Corolla, which is what I drive every day. Rachel drives the, the Camry. Um, <laughs> but third, then ask, what's the wise thing for me to do in light of my future hopes and dreams? 
So take buying versus renting a home. I mean, you're free to do either. There's nothing in the Bible that says you should always rent or always buy. (laughs) But if one of your future hopes and dreams involves relocating to a new city in two years, it might be unwise to buy a home. However, if you're planning to stay in the same city for 10 years, buying a home might be a really good decision to build equity and take advantage of, of tax credits. So when the Bible grants freedom, ask, what's the wise thing for me to do in light of my past experience, in light of my present circumstances, and in light of my future hopes and dreams? And then also ask, how does my conscience feel? How does my conscience feel about this? Our conscience is that little alarm in our heart and our mind that starts to go off when we sense that something is wrong for us to do. All of us have one. And Paul is clear in Romans chapter 14 that if we violate our conscience, even if the thing itself isn't inherently sinful, we sin. And in Romans 14, 23, he's actually in the middle of a very similar discussion about food offered to idols, and Paul writes this, but whoever doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And this is the case of the weaker brothers and sisters Paul is talking about in Corinth. They lack the knowledge that this is okay to do, and their consciences are, are hypersensitive about this. However, the way to change your conscience is not to continually violate it. It's really important. To change your conscience, the way to do that is not to continually violate it. That's like fixing an overly sensitive smoke detector by just taking the batteries out. Sure, you fix the small problem, but you open yourself up to a much greater danger that there really will be a fire and the alarm will not sound. So, for example, if for whatever reason you have uh, your conscience starts screaming at, when, at you when someone offers you a glass of wine, you think, I, I know this isn't technically wrong, but I just don't feel comfortable with this. Don't violate your conscience by drinking. Politely decline, and, and remember that there's freedom here. This isn't a, a sin issue, but there, there's freedom. But this isn't, I'm not comfortable with this for whatever reason. And then work to understand that this is something that asks the question, is this a wise or an unwise thing for me to do? And when you come to that conclusion, then work to bring your conscience in line with that conviction. But the way to do that isn't by violating it, isn't to do it when you're uncomfortable with it. Uh, next, to ask, will it help me love? If you know that someone's conscience is sensitive in a certain area, don't do something in front of them or with them that's going to offend them. I mean, this is pretty basic stuff, but so often we miss it. For example, if you know that someone's conscience is sensitive about food, that they've really come to the conclusion that, that eating food from animals is, is a wrong thing to do, then don't invite them over to your house for burgers and deviled eggs, okay? <laughs> and this is basic stuff. But I mean, this is a conscience issue for for many of us, right? You have a conscience that I I don't feel comfortable eating food that was produced from an animal. There's freedom there, but if that's someone's conscience, then don't, don't violate that for them. There are things you and I should give up at times in order to help us love. If someone in your community group is a recovering alcoholic, for the sake of love, you probably don't serve wine at the community group party that night. This doesn't mean that you never drink it all ever again, but in contexts where it might cause someone to trip up, you abstain for the sake of love. Love for you is better than freedom for me. That said, not lo- lo- loving, excuse me, that said, it's not loving 
to let someone confuse the gospel. And this is where it's really important to be careful in these contexts. It's not loving to let someone confuse the gospel. So if someone makes drinking or some other issue a gospel issue, we have a responsibility not to turn them into drinkers. That's not our responsibility. But to remind them and remind ourselves gently that the gospel is not plus Jesus plus no drinking. The gospel is not Jesus plus only PG movies. The gospel is not Jesus plus being a Republican or a Democrat. You see, because Jesus plus something always equals nothing when it comes to our rescue. And when we start adding to the gospel, even in what seems like small ways, we don't just endanger ourselves, we endanger everyone. Because Jesus plus that mentality, that isn't just a sniffle, that's cancer, and it will kill you. And then finally ask, can I call it worship? And this is where Paul concludes in verse 31 at the end of chapter 10. And once again, Eugene Peterson is just right on here. He says, so eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory after all, not to please them. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be callous in your exercise of freedom thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you. I try my best to be considerate to everyone's feelings in these matters, and I hope you will be too. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to God's glory. The whole of our lives is about worship. All of life, everything that we do, our lives aren't for us. They aren't about us. They're for building up our brothers and sisters in Christ and helping others meet Jesus. And in light of that, love for you is better than freedom for me. And who is more free than God? And what did he do? He gave up everything to rescue and redeem us. He became poor that we might become rich. He was rejected and despised that we might be welcomed and adopted as sons and daughters. The author of life was killed on the cross that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins might be given new life. And when we have that, then it's okay if we don't always have freedom because love for you is better than freedom for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us a wise people and that wisdom would be rooted in the deep love that builds up.